If you have your Bibles with you, please open up to 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapter 7 and 8 today. Um, We are in the midst of a narrative. Samuel is a narrative. It's a glorious narrative. If you are new today, welcome. If you want to catch up on the previous sermons, this is sermon number 4. The other sermons are online. You can check that on the website or on Sermon Audio if you've fallen behind at all. Last week, for those of you who were here, you remember that God executed his judgment on the house of Eli. He killed the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The Ark of the Covenant of God was taken in battle, taken by the Philistines. And then we saw God reveal himself to the Philistines and the Israelites as a holy God who was not a respecter of any man, Jew or Gentile. And he revealed himself in his righteousness and his self-sufficiency that he needs no one to magnify his name. He does that quite well himself. And then we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 7. We're told that the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab. Now our story resumes from that point. We've got to fast forward 20 years later. Okay, so from last week with the stealing, the taking of the ark and the return of the ark to Israel, we fast forward now 20 years and we have Samuel ruling as a judge and a prophet and a priest. But in the midst of Samuel's rule, there's horrible idolatry taking place. There was, there's rebellion amidst God's people. There's servitude and oppression by the Philistines. And as a result, we're told in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 7, that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years of idolatry, 20 years of rebellion, and they were tired, they were worn out. Sin does that to us. And so they come back to God, and they're lamenting before God, and they want to restore, as a people, a right relationship with the living God. They want to reconcile, as a people, with the Creator. And so from our passage today, by God's grace, we'll see three things. One, the process of reconciliation. What is true biblical reconciliation? I'm afraid that many of us still miss this in the context of contemporary Christianity. Number two, God's faithfulness to forgive and deliver. And then number three, how quickly we forget. The process of reconciliation, God's faithfulness to forgive and deliver, and then how quickly we forget. Point number one, look at verses three and following in 1 Samuel 7. What is this process of reconciliation? Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel is sympathetic to their plight. He sees the oppression that they're experiencing. But he comes to them, he says, if you want this to be made right, there's only one way to do it. He says, I'm not going to give you counsel that's other than the word of God itself. And he establishes for us some key conditions on what it means to be reconciled before God and even to one another when sin enters our lives. The Israelites were suffering extreme oppression from the hand of the Philistines. Many of them were slaves. Many of them were willingly worshipping the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And and these false gods, their worship of these false gods included horrible sexual acts in order for their crops to grow and for water to come. And so Samuel doesn't come up to them with some new program or new technique. When he sees them lamenting for a restored relationship with God, he brings to them the Bible. In fact, he brings to them the first commandment. He comes to them. Look at verse 3 again. He says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, 
He said, if you're coming back to God with all your heart, then I have biblical counsel. But if you're not here to submit yourself to God, to pour yourself out for God, to love God and pursue God with all your might, he said, then I have nothing to say to you. Samuel speaks to the Israelites as he will speak to us today through this word, showing us that this is the starting point. The first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. As God revealed to Moses in Deuteronomy 6.5, as Jesus preached in Mark chapter 12, he said, upon this commandment and the other commandment to love one another is all the law and all the prophets hang. So he said, if you want to understand reconciling with God, that it must start with a sincere heart, with all of who you are. And Samuel says, if you're coming back like that, he says, then I have great counsel for you. If you're coming back before God with a desire to worship him as the one true living God, he says, then I have something to say. Listen, he gives three commands. And it's not just for the Israelites, it's for everybody who professes faith in God through Christ throughout all the centuries. Three commands, three actions. We would call these in a business meeting, we call them action items. This is what we are to do in true reconciliation with the living God. He tells us three things. Put away your idols, direct your hearts to God, and serve Him only. Three required actions. These are not optional. True reconciliation with the living God requires us putting away our idols, directing our hearts to Him, and serving Him only. And that means this, saints, that reconciliation in the church does not start and stop with weeping and tears and an emotional, I'm sorry, God. It may start there. If it's sincere, that's a good place to start. But it does not end there. True reconciliation, Samuel says, you need to put away the foreign gods from among you. You must identify the idols in your life and stop worshiping them. Put them away. Literally in the Hebrew says, take them out of your presence. Stop paying allegiance to them. Now this is an active volition movement on your part to say, here's the idol, I will destroy the idol, and I will turn back to God. Which is what he says secondly. You destroy the idols, you put them away, and then direct your heart back to God. What does that mean? Your desires need to become His desires. Your will needs to become His will. When we direct our heart back to God, we're saying, Lord, your will be done, not mine. I want to live according to your teachings and your dictates. I want to know you. So he says, put away your idols, direct your heart to God, and then, I think the hardest part for us, because a lot of that can be done in prayer, he says, now, serve him. Serve him only. That means exercise this turning. Exercise you putting away your idols. Exercise you directing your heart back to God by serving him, by being a faithful priest in his kingdom, by growing in wisdom and knowledge and holiness, by loving your brothers and sisters as Christ has taught, taught us to and equipped us to by ministering to the poor and sharing the gospel with the lost and being that salt and light that we're called to be. He says, serve him only. Live like this. Put away your idols. Direct your heart to God and then live as a holy people. Samuel says, that's repentance. That's reconciliation. That's turning back to God. My question for you, as it was for me this week, was what idols are still destroying us this morning? What idols did we bring into this sanctuary this morning? What petty gods still captivate our, captivate our thoughts and keep us awake at night? What petty gods still direct and move our hearts instead of being directed toward God? What petty gods this morning are we still serving? God says, put them away, kill them. Direct your heart toward me and serve me only. Because in doing that, there is life now and forever. Samuel says, do this to the Israelites. Look at verse 3. 
He says, you do this. True reconciliation. With all your heart, putting away your idols, directing your heart toward God, serving Him only. True reconciliation. He says in verse 3, God will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now you say, oh, so we're manipulating God. No. This reconciliation is not coercion. It's not to get God to do what we want Him to do. This reconciliation before God should happen no matter what God decides to do. But Samuel's saying to the Israelites, and it applies to us today in Christ as well, that God will answer our prayers of reconciliation. He will restore that relationship. He'll make it right. He will make it right. Because we're the ones that mess it up. There is no merit in repentance. You can't earn God's forgiveness. God will not, saints, He will not bless our sin. He will not answer us if we continue to rebel against Him. In fact, He cannot. He hates sin. He hates how sin devours our lives, our families, our church, and our country. He hates it. And so for Him to come to us and bless us in the midst of our rebellion, when we continue to curse God's name and fight against His word, would make things worse. What He will do is this. He will bring the sin to our understanding in such a way that it will no longer be pleasurable. As the Bible says, the sin will become utterly sinful to us and we too will hate the sin. And then when that happens, when we hate the sin like God hates the sin, then what will he do? Then he will come to us because we will reconcile, we'll cry out for mercy and he will deliver us from that. He'll deliver us from our own sin. He'll deliver us from our corporate sin. He will do this. He will hear our prayers. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel 7. The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. They did. Samuel said, put them away and they did it. Then Samuel said, gather all at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered all at Mitzpah, the whole nation, and they drew water out and they poured it out before the Lord and they fasted on that day and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. You know what they were doing? This was a worship service. All of Israel gathered. Look what they did. They gathered together. They were a holy ecclesia, a holy convocation of God's people. They gathered. They prayed. They had a baptismal ceremony. Did you see that? They poured the water out. and It was a cleansing ceremony. And they fasted. What a contrast from last week. I mean, what a contrast from chapter 4. For those of you here last week, we saw people that were so hard-hearted and so rebellious, commanding that the ark be taken out and go before them in battle, using God, manipulating God, rather than worshiping and serving and loving God. And then here, we find in chapter 7, the entire nation gathering at Mitzvah. The contrast could not be greater. From a rebellious people trying to use God to a broken people submitting to Him and crying out to Him and worshiping Him. They saw their slavery to sin. They saw it. They hated it. They put away their idols. They turned their hearts to God. And what did they do? They said, God, you must save us. They put all their hope and all their trust and all their faith in God doing a work because they realized they couldn't do it. They couldn't manipulate God through the ark. They couldn't manipulate God through worship. And so they called upon him to do the great work that he must do. They were unable and they were unwilling. And they cried out, as a helpless people last week 
Uh, they cried out as a helpless people here at Mitzvah in desperate prayer. Look at verse 6. Such an amazing prayer. They, as a nation, said, We have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. You know what they were doing, saints? They were taking full responsibility for their actions. True repentance, true reconciliation means you take full responsibility. You say, It's on me. You own the sin. You stop passing it off. You stop justifying. You stop rationalizing. You own the sin completely before God and you confess that sin to him. If there's any hope of any reconciliation between a holy God and I would say man to man, then that must be true and full confession. You can't hold anything back. Years ago, I was ministering, counseling to a married couple. They were going through a real tough time. And we kept dealing with this necessity of confession one to the other. And, and, and he would confess a little bit, a little bit of confession, and she would repent a little bit. And this went on. And I said, it's enough. We've got to put it out on the table. If there's any hope of this marriage lasting, you can't do a little bit here and a little bit there. You need to put it out. You need to reconcile. It's no different with God. If we desire reconciliation with the Creator, we must be completely vulnerable. He said, that's the part I don't like. You must come before God and you must lay your sins out. We must come before God as a people and we must lay our sins out and we must confess our sins to God and seek forgiveness from Him. We can't hide any of it. And, and, and we know that. It's a foolish thought. I mean, what sin will you hide from God? What sin are you hiding from God right now or think you're hiding? He searches and knows the heart of every man. What sin do you think you will hide when you stand before Him on that day of judgment? None. This point of confession, this full confession as a people, is a very dangerous thing. I'm not going to lie to you. This is a holy God we're dealing with here. We saw last week that he struck 70 men dead for looking in an uncovered ark. This is the holy creator of all the universe. And you're saying, Pastor, you're telling us we should confess our sins? How do I know I won't end up like one of those 70? How will God reply to a people so guilty and yet so broken? So undeserving and yet so eager to be forgiven? How will he reply? It is a wise question and we should answer it. Point number two, God's faithfulness to forgive and deliver. Look at verse seven with me. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Saints, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised if when you confess your sins before God, you find yourself being tested. When you come before God and you make yourself vulnerable and you lay it all out there, do not be surprised if God brings some crisis into your life, some trouble into your life, to see whether or not you really are coming before Him and truly confessing those sins and putting your trust in Him. Really, are you? Or are you engaged in some movement of the ark just trying to manipulate God in this situation to remove the crisis so you can continue on your way as Lord of your own life? All of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the whole nation, to worship God, seeking forgiveness, turning from their idols. Mitzpah means watchtower. And the area is approximately five miles north of Jerusalem. It was a point of watch. You could actually look out. It was a, a military point for advantage. 
And what God does here is they're all gathered amidst a very vulnerable place for them all to be at the same time. He brings their arch enemies, the Philistines, out against them. In the middle of their confession, in the middle of their worship service, here comes their enemy. And we're told in verse 7 that they were afraid. Why? They weren't prepared for battle. They were afraid. Why? The Philistines up to that point in time had been highly successful. Still residing in Gath. Still in Ekron. What were they going to do? This is a crisis moment. This is a testing moment. What were they going to do? What were their options? They could run. Right? That's always an option. They could flee to their homes. As we saw last week. That's an option. They could take up their sword and they could fight. They could gather the elders together and say, let's get the ark and see if that will work a second time. It didn't work the first time. Maybe it's chance. Take it out. Take out the ark again. They could put up their white flag and just surrender. What did they do? Fear is an amazing thing, my beloved. Fear reveals, in the midst of crisis and fear, fear reveals who our true Savior is, where we put our real trust. It reveals much about a person and where they seek refuge and strength when fear comes in. How we respond to fear, it tells us where our hope really is. When you're in the midst of fear and crisis, when anxiety grabs you and has you bound, when you find yourself unable to sleep and your stomach's upset, where do you turn? To whom do you turn? Do you go back and check your portfolio to make sure it's stable or do you turn to God? Do you turn to food, friends, family, or to God? Do you turn to work or business? Many of us, when things get hard and crisis, we just work harder. Work another 12 hours. Work more, 15 more hours. Just work harder. Keep busy. Do you turn to entertainment, drugs, alcohol, sex, or to God? If you're not turning to God, then you're turning to a false God. You're turning to an idol. And we all go somewhere. We all turn to someone or something when crisis comes, when we're afraid, when we're really afraid. We turn to someone or something. What did the Israelites do when faced with the Philistines bearing down on them? It's amazing. It's truly amazing. This, these two verses captivated me for an entire day. Look at verses 8 and 9. First Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel, verse 9, took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Do you see what they did not do? They did not turn to their idols. They did not run. They did not grab a sword. They didn't try a religious trick thinking let's manipulate God to get him to fight for us. In verse 8, it says they, they cried out, do not cease to cry out to the Lord on our behalf for God. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. In other words, their hearts are revealed in that moment of crisis, in the, in the, in the face of death. What do they keep doing? They keep worshiping. They keep praying. They keep sacrificing. They don't say, Samuel, Stop. We've got to get our swords and fight. They say, Samuel, keep praying. Keep praying. How much hope had they put in God to save them? Look at verse 10. 
We're told in verse 10 that as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the nursing lamb, the Philistines drew near to attack. The entire nation is smack dab in the middle of a worship service and their enemy is bearing down on them. Let's imagine for a moment, as difficult as it may be in this country at this time, but let's imagine for a moment that in the middle of this sermon, we are made aware that there is an army of sorts bearing down on our church about ready to put all of us to death, men, women, and children. Let's imagine that for a moment. How many of you would honestly say, Pastor, keep on preaching. Pastor, keep on praying. Would I keep preaching? Would I keep praying? Or would I say, run for your lives? What they did here at Mitzvah is so extraordinary because it revealed that their reconciliation for God was sincere. It was true. They had turned with their whole hearts. They had come back to him. Because in, in, the, in, the, in the face of imminent death, they said, keep praying, Samuel. Keep sacrificing, Samuel. And they stayed. The natural response would have been to run or to fight. And they did neither. They continued to sacrifice the Lamb of God. And what did God do? How did he respond to their wholehearted repentance? Their prayer and their sacrificial worship. Look at verses 10 and 11. How did God respond? The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. And he threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as uh, below beth Car. They had put their faith in God to deliver them, and God did. In the midst of their greatest fear, their imminent death, women and children, they continued to worship God. And God thundered from above. The, uh, the understanding is that there was, there was literally that thunder, that sound, and it caused the Philistine ranks to be broken. And in fear, they then left. And then only after God had already delivered the victory did the Israelites pursue them. Only after. How many of us would have stayed and worshipped? How many of us would have continued to pray rather than fleeing to our homes or grabbing a sword to fight? This was a convicting question for me this week. How many of us would have believed that the Almighty God would have intervened and done what He promises to do? And that is to save His people. In our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And in that teaching, He's saying, Listen, seek God, seek His kingdom, seek His righteousness, seek His face. Seek the holiness that he desires for you. And all the things that you desire, that, that, that peace that you desire in the midst of anxiety, that security that you long for when you're really afraid, those, that satisfaction that you so desperately want in the midst of broken dreams and tattered plans. Jesus said, pursue Christ, pursue my Father Love my Father. And all those things will be added. All of them. In other words, Jesus is saying the same thing that those at Mitzvah did. Continue to worship God. And it's not just a corporate worship gathering. It's worshiping God every moment of every day. With all of who you are, right? All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might, all your words, all your thoughts. Everything you do with your hands. He says, worship God. Worship God. 
And God will forgive you. And God will deliver you. You say, well, this sounds so simple. It's not. Because we're, we're apt to worship ourselves. Some would say, well, how can I trust this guy? In what right does Christ have to give me that counsel? When I'm afraid, I want to run. When I'm afraid, I want to fight. And he's saying, continue to worship my father. What right does he have to say that? How can we be sure that it's true? Look at verse 9 again. Christ was answering that question way back in the Old Testament. Just as Samuel in verse 9 took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Jesus Christ offered himself as the ultimate sacrificial lamb to God on the cross and God answered his son. On the cross Jesus said what? Forgive them father for they know not what they do. And God answered his son. He was pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. He was pleased with the sacrificial lamb. The Israelites came before God at Mitzvah, confessing their sins and seeking mercy and grace. And God answered that prayer through the sacrifice of the nursing lamb that Samuel offered up. It was a payment. They said, Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the idolatry. Forgive us for our rebellious hearts. And then they offered up the lamb, and God received that. We come before him in San Jose today. We, Camden Avenue Baptist Church, confessing our sins and seeking mercy and grace from God our Father. And God answers our prayers. Everyone who repents and believes, he answers us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God, John the Apostle said, John the Baptist said, it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as those at Mitzvah did not forsake the sacrifice of the Lamb, but continued to worship in the midst of dire straits, so too must we not forsake the sacrifice of our Lamb when we find ourselves under attack. We must not run to our homes. We must not grab the weapons of this world. Rather, we must remain faithful in worship. We must keep our eyes on Christ and the cross all the time. The Bible says, saints, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix all your hope. When things are easy, when things are hard, when you feel secure and when we are terrified, he says, keep your eyes on the cross. Keep your eyes on Christ. Worship Him. We must remember the great work of our sacrificial lamb on the cross. Dying for our sins and rising from the dead to bring us life now and for eternity. My beloved, it's when you are afraid. I mean really afraid. It's when you find yourself anxious and stressed. When you feel like things are completely out of control. It's in those times when you find yourself desperate that your faith is being tested and by his grace grown. Grown like those at mitzvah. What was the result of God's grace and their faithfulness? What was it? The Philistines are subdued for the rest of the time that Samuel reigned as judge. It says that they did not again enter the territory of Israel. 
Ekron and Gath. Those were two Israelite cities that were lost last week. They're taken back by the Israelites. The Philistines are cast out. The idols are cast out. And we're told that there was peace in, throughout the whole land. Peace throughout the whole land. What was that? God had delivered them. They had come to God with all their heart. They had put their idols away. They had redirected their heart toward God. They were serving the Lord. And God delivered them. This is a, this is a small glimpse of God delivering us as a people. This is a small glimpse of that great deliverance God will bring when he comes again in glory. When he delivers us forever. So we've seen, one, the process of reconciliation. Two, God's forgiveness and deliverance. And we could end the sermon right here, could we? I mean, we could end it. In fact, for those of you who know chapter 8, said, let's just leave it. Let's just skip right over chapter 8. But it would not reveal the truth about us and certainly not the truth about God's people throughout history. Point number three, how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget. Chapter 8, again, fast forwards. So chapter 6 to chapter 7, fast forwards 20 years. Chapter 7 to chapter 8, fast forwards to the end of Samuel's life. The very end of his life. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways and turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. The storyline sounds familiar. You say, this is a sequel of Hophni and Phinehas. It was bad then, it's bad again. Some time had passed. But instead of the elders saying under Hophni and Phinehas, let's get the ark and bring it out to save us, now they think, let's have a new king. Let's have a new governmental structure. Look at verses 4 and 5. All the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now remember, several years had passed. We're not talking about the, the experience of God delivering them at Mitzvah and then a year later. So some time had passed. But what had happened? They had forgotten. They had forgotten God as their king. They had forgotten God as their deliverer. They had forgotten that there was a point in time when they had come to Mitzpah and they confessed their sins and God delivered them. And they had forgotten all this. They had forgotten that they repented and God had mercy. He did not kill them. They had forgotten that they asked God to deliver them. By his grace, he did. From the hands of the Philistines in supernatural fashion. They came at mitzvah. They came before God a helpless, kingless, dependent people. And they cried out to God for help. And God saved them. Though they lived in this world, they did not wage war as the world did. Their weaponry consisted of prayer, worship, sacrifice, and faith. And yet here in this chapter, some years later, they're now thinking like the world and they're fighting like the world. They're demanding a king so that they can be like all the other nations. They want a king who will go before them and fight in battle. No longer were they interested in putting their hope and trust in the name of Yahweh. 
No longer did they find themselves utterly helpless and hopeless apart from God intervening. They were looking for a new solution to their problem. Their problems had arisen again. Idolatry had come back in. The nation was seeing oppression. And so they wanted a, a solution, an external fix. This is so like us today. And this time in the form of a new government, they wanted a king. Now most people hear this within the church and they don't understand really the implications of this request. It wasn't that they asked for a king that was bad. You know that. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 15. Just listen, I'll read. God said through Moses, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us have a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. So it wasn't in asking for a king that they were sinning. God knew that. He had prophesied to it in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He said, when you do want a king, make sure it's the one that I appoint for you. So it wasn't they're asking for a king that was the problem. It was their motive behind the request. Look at verses 6 and following and we'll see why. The problem was their, the motive of their heart. Verse 6 in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was displeased when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. This is an amazing part. Little note. Samuel gets all bent out of shape. They're rejecting me. Samuel thinks they're rejecting me as their judge. It's all about Samuel. And God says, it's not about you. They're rejecting me, God, as their king. So grievous. We see this historically. I mean, we see it in light of chapter 7. And we think to ourselves, what fools! This God delivered you in a thunderstorm. This God forgave you when you confessed your sins of your idolatry and your wicked hearts and you're not serving Him only. He forgave you. He did this incredible work for you and has throughout the history. We can go all the way back and we say, God working supernaturally again and again and again for His people. And we say, how could they not see this? How could they be so foolish? We make the, the catastrophic mistake of saying, how could they be so stupid? This is not a matter of intelligence. I ask myself and I will ask you, are we any different? Don't we have the same fleshly tendency to look at our situation, to look at a crisis, to look at a circumstance that we are struggling with and look for a temporal, material answer to it? Aren't we apt also to first look for an answer that makes sense to us rather than going to God himself? How often is our first response an attempt to tweak an existing system or program? If we just tweak this or turn that, find a new technique or establish a structure. In the church, it's always about new ministry. We've got to find a new ministry. We've got to find a new pastor. We've got to find a new church. We've got to find a new location. It's all these things. Temporal things. Material things. Rather than crying out to God with a broken and contrite heart. Rather than looking to God as our Savior. 
calling him king. We do the same thing. We call for another king. They decided, they decided, not God, that it would be better for them to be ruled by an earthly king. They made that decision. Someone to rule over them. The same spiritual amnesia has been repeated again and again throughout the history of God's people. They go from the heights of mitzvah to the depths of Ramah. At one point, relying upon God with all their, all their heart and all their soul to rejecting God and saying, we want another king. We want someone else to rule over us. They had taken their focus off the creator. They had, they had taken their focus off his kingdom. And now they were arguing. I used to teach political science. This is almost unbearable. They're arguing for a change of government. That'll fix it. We just need a new government. We need a new type of king. A new method, a new process, or a new person. They never, ever will solve our problems. For decades, the church, at least in the West, has approached the problem of spiritual and numerical, the lack of spiritual and numerical growth in the church, with this same mindset. We need a new sign. We need chairs instead of pews. Carpet instead of tile. The health and wealth gospel, the seeker-sensitive movement, the contemporary church movement, the emergent church movement, the charismatic movement, the conservative movement, the popular pastor movement. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it's the same thing. The same mistake. It's asking for a new king. Now, we would never say that. And the literature doesn't say that. Here's a great new program. Get rid of the old king. But it's the same thing. Now, asking for a king... I imagine to the Israelites seemed imminently reasonable. It did. All the other nations had kings. It made sense that they had a king. Then the king could go out and fight on their behalf. But we see from this narrative, it was utterly godless. They were asking for an earthly king because they didn't want God as their king. They were asking for an earthly king because they did not want God's kingdom. Now rather than God smiting them, for rejecting, God is king whether we want him to be or not. Our saying, give us another king, doesn't remove him from the throne. So the very fact that this holy, eternal king did not smite all of Israel on the spot, that is a pure act of grace. And he doesn't. What he does is extraordinary. Look with me. He actually tells Samuel, go back and tell him that it's a really bad idea. Go back and tell them what's going to happen when they have a king and and maybe that'll change their mind. Look with me, verses 10 and following. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Samuel said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Listen to this. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to blow, some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters, to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain, and your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, the best of your young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks 
and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Six times, what did you hear in seven verses? Six times you heard God saying, this king will take, will take, will take, will take, and you will become a slave. He will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your fields, he will take your vineyards, he'll take a tenth of your produce, he'll take your servants, he'll take a tenth of your flocks. God says, you'll become a slave. That's what you're asking for. And when that happens, God says, and you cry out to me, I will not deliver you. I will not relieve you of the oppression that you've brought upon yourself by denying me as king and asking for a king. Now, this is Samuel the prophet who comes back to the people with a word from God. It is a word that is imminently reasonable. Most people do not want to be slaves. Most people don't want their sons and daughters and their crops and their animals taken from them by force. Listen to their response. Zechariah would say, you have diamond hard hearts and you've stopped up your ears. Look at verses 19 and following. 1 Samuel 8, 19 and following. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, this is, I think, one of the most, uh, this verse 22 in 1 Samuel 8 is one of those verses that should just resonate deeply with us. God said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Did you hear that? God is saying to his prophet to obey the voice of the people rather than calling the prophet to have the people obey the voice of God. This is catastrophic. And God hands them over. So grievous, so rebellious, so like us, so like us. We don't want to hear God's voice. We don't want to submit to God. We want God to submit to us. And yet what's revealed here if we have any ear to hear at all, if we haven't made our hearts diamond hard, is that whenever we do that, whenever we say to God, we will decide, but according to our word, the end is destruction, the end is slavery. Our sons and our daughters and our prophets and our crops, taken. Every time, without exception, this is the same storyline again and again and again. Wanting to grow them in their faith, God is still so gracious. He takes their poor and wicked decision and he uses it for his own purposes to bring about his own glory and the salvation of man. He takes one of the most catastrophic mistakes the nation of Israel made, which was rejecting God as king and, and wanting their own king. He takes that and he uses it for his own purposes, not only to bring himself glory, but to save people. How gracious is this God? We cannot begin to describe his grace and his mercy. What are we to glean from this? What, I mean, what do we take as Camden Avenue Baptist Church in 2014? What, how do we see the, the spiritual heights and faithfulness at mitzvah of a people that had truly turned and, and submitted to and put all their faith in living God to the depths of this rejection of God as their king at Ramah? 
Simply this. And I, w- I want to make it simple so we don't lose track because there are lots of things we can do. But simply this. When we lose our trust in God, when we take our trust from God to something else, another king, another program, an idol of some kind, when we do that, when we turn from the word of God to our own word, the wisdom of God to the wisdom of man, great harm will come upon us. Now, it, it doesn't mean that if you're saved, you'll lose your salvation, but we can make a mess of things. We all know that. Certainly, you've made a mess of things in your safe state. I know I have. I've made a mess of a lot of things. And it's always been a result of me not trusting in God and listening to God's voice and submitting to him. It's been putting my trust in something else or someone else. It's been hearing my own foolish words. We see from our text that if we reject God and don't put our trust in God and we, and we, and we opt for a method or a, or a structure or a program over a relationship with the living God, when we do that, we will be just like the world. Look at verse 5. It says, they, they ask God to appoint a king to judge them so they can be like all the other nations. And then that's repeated again in verse 21. There shall be a king over us. They said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations. The Bible calls us to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that means, saints, whatever you put your trust in, whatever you put your hope in, that will shape you. You put your hope and trust in God, it'll shape you. You will be as he is. You put your hope and trust in the world, that will shape you. They made themselves slaves. Whenever we turn from our trust in God, whenever we turn from the word of God, we enslave ourselves. We don't think we're doing that. We think we're making a good choice. The fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy in the life of Israel under a monarchy started under King Saul. We're going to see that actually before we finish 1 Samuel. It grew under King David, the oppression the slavery that they would be subject to in their new government. But it took full form under King Solomon. Under King Solomon, burden and oppression defined the people. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, that King Solomon placed a heavy yoke on God's people. Just as God had said. Do you remember in our study in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, when we were told that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's Satan. Satan takes. He takes and he takes and he takes and he devours. That is his desire to destroy all that is good and right and true and pure, all that God is doing to make a mess of it. Like the Israelites demanding a king, when we move against God, against his word, against his will, we align ourselves with the father of darkness and we take, take, take. We become slaves. We don't realize it at first. The Israelites didn't either. When Saul was appointed king, the nation rejoiced. They had no idea what they had stepped in. They had no idea what that future was going to be like for them. With the passage of time, their king led to destruction. The same holds true for us. I think the most striking thing that we should gather from this, though, is their rejection of the word of God. In, it actually says in verse 19, no, with an exclamation point. I think it's appropriate. 
What's so terrifying is they're saying no to God. God comes back to them with great grace in Samuel and says, tell them how bad it's going to be. Tell them what a terrible decision this is. And they reply to God's word. They reply to the prophet Samuel, no, there shall be a king over us. A direct refusal to hear the wisdom of the teachings coming from God's mouth through his prophet Samuel. Without exception, the greatest struggle in the church today is a lack of submission to the word of God. I've only been pastoring 12 years, so I can't speak with a 50-year life experience. But my greatest struggles in loving and ministering to people is a lack of submission to the word of God. And it really comes down to that. When crisis comes in, when sin comes in, and the word of God becomes the ministry tool... Where we go to the word of God to minister, to teach, to rebuke, to admonish, to correct, to train in righteousness. This is what we have. We say, no. No. And lives are destroyed. Marriages are dissolved. Children are fragmented. Churches blow up. Why? Because we won't submit to the word of God. Now, saints, we know better. We know better. And I'm not saying it's not hard to submit. At times, it's really hard. But we know better. We have history on our side. We have the revelation of God on our side. We have Christ on our side who is the word. We know better. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice, the counsel of God, the word of God. When you reject God's word, you know you're rejecting God. When they asked for a king, they were rejecting God as king. When they said no to God's word, they were rejecting him. It's no different for us. They were experiencing a national crisis of faith. No longer trusting in God, loving God, putting their hope and security in God to protect them. I am so thankful that in the midst of this catastrophic mess being made by the Israelites, that God is still sovereign, God is still upon his throne. He says, I'm going to take this mess that you're making, and i got bigger plans. I'm going to take the mess that you're making, and I'm going to use it to glorify myself, to glorify my son, and to redeem a people. How did he do that? And I'm going to close. He would take their faulty, fragile, foolish kingdom and he would use it to reveal the king. He'd use it to reveal his son, Jesus Christ. The real king. The only king. A thousand years after this event, two thousand years back for us, Jesus Christ, the eternal king, did come. And he didn't come to be like Satan. He didn't come to be like Saul or David or Samuel. He didn't come to take, take, take. This king is unlike any other king, any other king who's ever served or any other king who will serve. This king came to give. He came to give his whole life. He came to give everything he had in his service to God and his love for man, in his love for fallen man, in his love for rebellious man. This king came. He did not come, as the Bible says, to, to be served, but to serve. He did not come demanding your life as a ransom. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. What king does that? What king says, I will die for your sins so that you might live? 
What king says, I had everything and I gave it all up for you? Only one, only Christ. This king died and rose from the dead that we might have life. And so this king comes to you today in San Jose. You're not at Ramah. You're not at Mitzvah. You're in San Jose. And just like Samuel, this king comes to you today and he says, listen, my beloved, take your whole heart and turn it to God. Direct your heart to God. Take all the filthy, stupid, foolish idols in your life and destroy them. Put them away. Put them away. This king says, out of glory for my father and my love for you, this king says to us today, serve him only. This king says, serve the one true living God who is worthy of all of our service and all the glory and all the honor and all the praise now and forever and ever. This king gives us the most brilliant counsel. He says, when you're in the midst of crisis and you're deathly afraid, keep worshiping. When you want to run or you want to fight with the weapons of this world, keep worshiping, keep praying, keep searching scripture, keep gathering, keep preaching, keep teaching, keep doing it. This king says, fix your eyes upon me. When the world is telling you everything to the contrary. When we're bombarded by lies and advertisements. When we're bombarded by, he says, keep your eyes fixed on me. These are things we cannot do unless Christ enables us to do them. These are impossible imperatives unless Christ comes and saves us and empowers us with the Holy Spirit to do these things. But by the Holy Spirit, you can turn your heart. And by the Holy Spirit, you can put away your idols. And by the Holy Spirit, you can direct your heart to God and serve Him only. And in the midst of crisis, continue worshiping. The Holy Spirit enables you to do that. It is impossible for you, but it is not impossible for God. Through the cross, God the Father grants to us the power and the righteousness of Christ. Through the cross. Christ calls us to this this morning because he knows something that many even in the church reject to this day. This king came the first time and he subjected himself to humility and destruction on a cross. He came as a king, as a humble servant. He's going to come again as a king, and he knows this, and we ought to too, because the Bible talks about it over and over. Old and he's going to come again in glory. All the glory of the Father, he's going to come. And when he comes again in glory, it says he will judge the living and the dead. Every man, every woman, every child will have to give an account before this king. And at that point in time, it'll be too late. At that point in time, there won't be grace and there won't be mercy and there won't be forgiveness offered. At that point in time, if you do not know this king now, if you've submitted yourself to another king and another kingdom, then when this king comes again, when Jesus Christ comes again, he will say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. There are no greater, more devastating words for any man, woman, or child than God to say, I don't know you. Because for that person who has submitted themselves to another king and another kingdom, their eternity will be hell. It'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. A place where the worm never dies and the smoke never ceases to rise to heaven. 
This king knows that when he comes again in glory, at that point in time, it will be too late. And that's why he says, now what? He says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. He says, repent now. Believe now. There's hope now for all of us. I don't know where you stand with Christ. I don't. At our dinner table last night, we were talking about, well, how can you really know someone else is saved? I said, you know, you really can't. He said, well, what about 1 John? I said, yeah, you can talk about that. You can talk about the profession of the faith. You can talk about a love for the brothers and sisters. You can talk about obedience. But you really can't know. But you can. You can know yourself that you know God. He says, repent and believe this day. Follow him. Turn your heart to God. Kill the idols. So many idols to kill. Kill them. Direct yourself back to God. You can trust Christ. You can trust this king because he died for your sins. You can trust this king because he rose from the dead. You can trust this king because right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father and this king intercedes on our behalf. This king gave everything for you. This king came to set you free. And so, I beseech you this morning, as Samuel did then, don't choose another king. Don't ask for slavery. Repent and turn this morning to Christ that you might be set free. Let's pray. Father, we are foolish if we look at this storyline and we say what, what foolish people those Israelites were. We are greater fools, Lord, if we see their great faith at Mitzvah and how far they had fallen at Ramah and we say, how could you do that? Father, we know we are just like they they knew you. They cried out to you. They sought mercy and forgiveness and you granted to them. And then years later, they turn against you and they reject you as king and they ask for their own king. We know our hearts are equally fickle. And so we come before you, I pray, helpless, kingless, crying out for the same mercy and the same grace they ask at Mizpah putting all of our hope and all of our trust in you to save us and you to deliver us through your king, through Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for our foolishness, for not putting away our idols, for directing our heart in all those things to all those idols that are not you. Be gracious with us this morning, Father. Be gracious with us this morning. We are a stiff-necked people as well. By your grace, cause us to see our need for you to be our king. And then this morning, turn to you. Turn to you. Putting all of our hope and all of our trust and all of our life in you to save us. And then living each and every day with the purpose of bringing you honor and glory. You are the king. You are our king. I pray that's reflected in our lives. 
to the glory of your name, to the glory of your son's name, both now and forever. Make us that people, I pray. We cannot do it on our own. In Christ's name, amen.